Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. A dire situation in Gaza as the humanitarian crisis worsens and Israeli strikes intensifies. The deadliest month for journalists in 30 years. I speak to Dylan Collins, whose colleague Isam Abdallah was killed in southern Lebanon. Then, what does the future look like for Israeli security? A former politician turned tech entrepreneur tells me next. And we reach a climate tipping point. As COP28 enters its final days, what progress has been made? I ask the UAE's climate minister and the U.S. agriculture secretary. Plus, America's global duty. Senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Corey Corey Shackey, explores this with Walter Isaacson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. I'm Bianca Goladriga in New York, sitting in for Christiane Amanpour. In two months of war between Israel and Hamas, the death toll has reached terrifying heights. Nearly 17,500 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks on Gaza, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry. And new casualties have been reported this week in the West Bank, southern Lebanon, and northern Israel. More than 60 journalists and media workers are among those killed, a record number according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. One of those who lost his life is Reuters videographer Isam Abdallah, who was killed in southern Lebanon on October 13th. New investigations by two news organizations and two human rights groups say it was Israeli tank shells that killed him and injured six others. Human Rights Watch and AFP claim the strike was, quote, deliberate. In October, Israel called the death a, quote, tragic thing without acknowledging involvement. Here's what spokesman Ilan Levy said on Thursday. The guiding principle of Israel's campaign against Hamas is that we uphold the principles of international law regarding proportionality, necessity, distinction. We target Hamas. We do not target civilians. Part of that group of journalists injured in southern Lebanon is AFP video journalist Dylan Collins. And he joins me now from Beirut. Uh, Dylan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, nearly two months later, m- my first question is how, how are you doing still physically and emotionally after that day? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's been two months of uh, grief and exa- ex- exhaustion. Um, as we try to kind of wrap our heads around this this brutal double tap 
uh, strike on a group of journalists uh, simply doing their job, uh, and, and a strike that led to the killing of our friend and colleague uh, Isam Abdullah from Reuters. Walk us through what um, happened that day. Uh, so that day um, was a pretty quiet day. We were all covering um, the events on the border of Lebanon with Israel. Um, and at a certain point in the afternoon, uh, we heard some bangs off to off in the distance and uh, eventually saw a plume of smoke. So uh, the Reuters and AFP teams um, went uh, cautiously towards the smoke and arrived to this kind of uh, exposed hill. Um, and we found an Al Jazeera team uh, already broadcasting live from that position. Um, it seemed like kind of the perfect place to start working. You know, we're exposed to multiple Israeli positions uh, along the border. Um, everyone was wearing flak jackets, helmets, uh, with press written across our chests. Um, we had three live feeds to three international news agencies. The, um, the, the, the Israelis had drones in the air the entire time. Um, and I imagine, you know, with their state-of-the-art uh, surveillance capabilities, uh, they could see our faces. They probably knew which, uh, which channels we were working for. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we had been filming for about an hour, this plume of smoke. Um, and, uh, but around 6.02 uh, that evening, um, we were struck uh, directly. Uh, 30 seconds, 37 seconds later, we were struck again in the same uh, exact spot, almost. And both you, AFP, and Human Rights Watch, as we noted, uh, have reported that the strike was deliberate and targeted on, uh, by Israel on journalists. So CNN and CNN's analysis has been in line with the conclusion that the shell was Israeli but has not confirmed that the attack was, quote, deliberate. And it's important for us to highlight the difference there. Give us um, AFP's and Human Rights Watch assessment for the decision they made in labeling this as deliberate. Well, I can't speak for Human Rights Watch, um, and I, I, I'm not going to speak. Uh, I, I, can, I can tell you what, what, what I witnessed, you know, that there were, it was two strikes, 37 seconds apart, um, almost in the same exact location, on a group of journalists, uh, seven journalists, all wearing press vests and uh, and helmets with cameras and tripods. Two strikes, uh, 37 seconds apart, in nearly the same exact position. Um, you could say maybe if there was one strike, you could say it's a mistake uh, or by accident. They didn't mean to. Um, but if it's two strikes back to back in the same exact spot, um, it's kind of hard not to see it as a, as a deliberate uh, strike. So the IDF, as we heard, denies uh, targeting journalists. Um, CNN asked the IDF for comment on the allegations. An IDF spokesperson, Richard Hecht, on October 14th, called uh, Isam's death a tragic thing without acknowledging any Israeli role. And he later told Reuters that we do not target journalists, reiterating what they said again what do you make of the IDF's response, and have you heard anything different from them since then? Um, well, I mean, all of the investigations that were released yesterday pointed to uh, 
a thin stabilized 120 millimeter tank round that killed uh, Isam al-Dallah. Um, that type of munition is uh, used by Israeli Merkava tanks. Um, I, I think that the evidence is <laughs> r- relatively clear um, in terms of, of, of how that how that munition could have been fired at us. Yeah, and we should note that uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Thursday said that, that ISIM's death should indeed be investigated. Can you tell our viewers more about ISIM, both professionally and the kind of person that he was? You know, ISIM, uh, is, <clears throat> I, I worked as a journalist for 15 years, and he was the, the beating heart of the, uh, the press scene here in Beirut. Um, his losses felt acutely. Um, he's a funny, he, he was a, a funny, kind, uh, sweet man uh, who loved uh, food, uh, motorcycles, corny jokes, preferably, mm. you know, all three combined. <laughs> uh, he loved animals and, and, and uh, had a habit of adopting stray cats. Um, you know, my, my, <clears throat> my thoughts are really with his, his family and, and colleagues as they struggle with his, his tragic killing. How are they doing? Uh, I mean, how, how is anyone doing right now? Um, it, his, his mom is strong. Um, and his sister is incredibly strong, but it's such, it's such a brutal attack on journalists simply doing their job and so incredibly unexpected that uh, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. We know that AFP photographer um, Christina Asi also, I believe, was injured gravely, had her leg amputated and remains in the hospital. Can you give us a status about how she's doing? Have you spoken with her? Yeah, um, Christina, I I see her pretty much every day in the hospital. Um, You You visit her? Yeah, she's here in Beirut in the hospital. Uh, But, you know, she sustained devastating injuries to both legs and... uh, uh, which led to the amputation of one of her legs. Um, she's been, you know, since October 13th, she's undergone more than 15 different surgeries. She's been in and out of the ICU. Um, she's bled more than any human should bleed. Um, yeah. But, you know, she's she's an immensely strong person, and um, her strength has carried me through the trauma of the, these past two months. That, that description there, she's bled more than any person... Um should bleed uh, really um, quite emotional and, and puts into perspective what the risks are for journalists. Uh, you're a seasoned journalist. Uh, you've covered conflict zones before. I, I'm wondering, lastly, how this war differs in, in the previous from the previous battles that, that you've covered. I think, I mean, as you said at the beginning of the, uh, the episode, um, there's been a staggering number of journalists killed. Uh, the, the numbers put out by CPJ, the Committee yeah. to Protect 63. Journalists, are the the, the, the deadliest. Uh, it's the deadliest on record for journalists. Deadliest conflict on record for journalists since CPJ started collecting data 30 years ago. Um, again, the death toll in general in Gaza is, is staggering. But you know, I think every time. A journalist is killed. The, the world loses, you know, a pair of eyes, a, a witness. Uh, Isam Abdullah was one of those people. Uh, someone, you know, trying to speak truth to power, hold those in power accountable. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I 
I hate the fact that I'm on television right now because you know we're not supposed to become the story. We're supposed to yeah. tell the story. Um, and my job but is supposed are. to be behind the camera. You are telling the right. story. I mean, sadly, th this is the, the really brutal side of war as well. And and you and, and your colleagues and, and brave friends um, were there uh, and suffered, you know, at the cost of losing your lives. So you are doing your job and you are telling us about Isom and his incredible personality as well as his work ethic and talent. So thank you. Thank you for, for continuing to do your job here. I know that it's not easy and I know it's not what you expected when you knew you'd be covering this war. Um, Dylan Collins, thank you and give our best to Christina. Uh, it just speaks volumes to, to your empathy too that you visit her every single day. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. While calls for an immediate ceasefire continue, with the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres describing the current situation as a threat to international peace and security. But with the IDF continuing to bombard Gaza, is peace realistic? Former Israeli politician turned tech entrepreneur Errol Magalit believes that Israel's security concerns can be resolved. And he joins me now. Errol, welcome back to the program. You know, the last time you and I spoke, uh, this was a different, what many viewed as an existential threat and crisis to, to Israel. And that was the judicial reforms and the attempts uh, to block it for months on end. And now here the country is facing its worst and more, most challenging war since, um, since its founding, really, in terms of the casualty lost. You heard the conversation there with Dylan. Uh, there's virtually no place in, in the near immediate region there that hasn't been touched by, by just the death toll and the tragedy of this all. G give, us, give us a sense from your perspective on what can be done to move things forward and what happens next. Yes, well, thank you for having me. And just anecdotally, you know, we have a big food tech and ag tech center in Kiryat Shmona, which is the city on the other side of the border from where uh, the journalist was being hit. And what I can tell you that on the northern border, before we come into Gaza, 
Israel had no quarrel on the northern border. Hezbollah, which was supposed to be 29 kilometers north of that, according to UN Resolution 1701, beyond the Litani River, is now sitting on the border, threatening Israel. And I can assure, I don't know the details of the event, but I can assure you uh, that Israel has no interest, no interest whatsoever to hit journalists, and that Israel, uh, Israeli civilians had to be evacuated for the northern border. Our hub, 173 startups, had to be evacuated from the northern border because Hezbollah is on the border, and Hezbollah is pressing Israel all the time. Israel needs to protect itself. Now, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, you also, though, are calling for, for a paradigm shift in how yes. Israel approaches its security. Um, there's a lot of blame, I, I know, coming externally, but also internally, for how Netanyahu had miscalculated Hamas's intentions and thought that, that, that he could work with the organization if they focused and came to terms with some sort of economic policy. That clearly did not happen. So what is this paradigm shift that, that you're laying out? So in 2014, I was in the Security and Foreign Affairs Committee. I was uh, before that in, in Special Forces in Israel. And we, we had a big debate. And some of us uh, thought that Hamas should be taken out. And Netanyahu and some of his government thought that Hamas should be dealt with by giving them money and trying to see whether they can, we can calm them down. So the, the, um, uh, the paradigm shift on security is that you cannot live next to a terror-run state like Hamas. Hamas will never be uh, a partner where we can live next to. And what Israel's doing in Gaza right now, and you know, we now have a consensus in Israel that Hamas needs to be taken out. And the UN needs to understand that. If there's gonna be any hope for the people of Gaza, if any reconstruction is gonna be there for life and not for death, Hamas needs to be removed and a different coalition that, that includes Arab states that now Israel has relationship with, like Egypt, like the UAE, like Saudi Arabia, uh, like Bahrain, like many others need to stand up and together with the Palestinian administration take control of Gaza and start building Gaza for life and not for death. Because in the last year alone, $2.5 billion that were transferred to Hamas in Gaza were used to build a 500 kilometer terror tunnel that they're not going to stop using unless they are removed. And I understand it's painful, but it's a necessary process. You know, uh, from reporting, it, all indications suggest that behind closed doors, th those regional Arab neighbors and leaders are also in favor of getting rid of Hamas. The hard part is how, aside from just eliminating the leadership and thousands of, of their, their terrorists and fighters, the, the, the ideology is so deeply ingrained and has been for decades. Their popularity has only increased now, we know, in the West Bank, um, even if the PA is allowed to come in on the day after. And that's a big if because, you know, Netanyahu saying that's not going to happen. Uh, the, the Palestinian officials, the PA officials just today said that they would have to work with Hamas. So how does your plan actually bear any fruit, given the difficulties that it, it takes to, to get rid of Hamas all in all? 
Yeah, but I want, I want to put things in perspective. You know, we, JVP, the fund that I manage, a lot of what we're doing is actually the heart of what we're doing is in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, every day we cooperate with Palestinians. In the West Bank, every day we cooperate with Palestinians. Of course, you report a report of the extremists, but there's many moderate Palestinians that we cooperate with. So what is our goal? Our goal, that the moderation that many of us see in the day-to-day -day cooperation doesn't mean that we agree about everything. Israel's had a cooperation on the security front with the Palestinian Authority for the last 30 years, even when we didn't agree on all issues. The Palestinian Authority in its new form, in the form that is not corrupt, was supporting by the Egyptians, supporting by the UAE, which is ready to put the money where their mouth is, supporting by the uh, Saudis, by, the, uh, by Bahrain, needs to stand up and start to take control of the administration. And that's where Israel needs to work with the U.S., with Europe, with NATO, with the other countries as well, about coordinating that process. And the one thing that we are saying, yes, we're going to continue to fight in the tunnels, on the ground, over the air, but we also need to use the diplomatic hand. The diplomatic hand was that that allowed us to take uh, Arafat out of uh, uh, Beirut in 1982 when we fought the PLO on the street. The diplomatic hand needs to be the one that takes responsibility from Gaza away from Hamas and into an administration which will be responsible, which will build school for the people, which will build uh, um, places for the people and not an underground terror tunnel, that if that's going to be built again, Israel is not going to accept it. It will go back in there. And therefore, I'm telling the UN, I'm telling all the different organizations, if you want to bring security to the region, you need to understand that just like as you removed ISIS, you removed Al-Qaeda, you need to remove Hezbollah, you need to remove uh, uh, Hamas from Gaza, because if Hamas stays in Gaza, the war will come back again. And there's nothing like Israeli uh, citizens, the one that were massacred on October 7th in the kibbutzim, in the moshavim, in the cities, are those citizens that actually cared the most about the Palestinians. They were the ones that opened the gates on yeah. Erez, Shar Erez, to allow 30,000 Palestinians to come to work in Israel. But we understand that all that cannot continue to happen when Hamas is in power. Hamas will be taken out, and then the Palestinians could begin to have a future. Israel will support that, but Israel requests and demands moderation and not a terror of death. We want a, 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 a country, a place which will build life. If people yeah. want to live next to us, we will give them a hand. If people will try to kill, the, kill us, er we Errol, will come after them. Errol, no serious person or objective person would disagree with what you just laid out. But in that, um, the partner, the partner in hand now for the vision that you've laid out for a new, less corrupt, new generation of PA leadership, is the co-partner for that, in your view, Netanyahu? Is he capable of that? Netanyahu is our chosen prime minister. It's not a secret that I come from the other side of the political spectrum, and I had many criticism of Netanyahu when I was in politics and outside of politics. I don't have the same views as Netanyahu, but even Netanyahu or any other Israeli prime minister needs to see that there's another administration there in Gaza. Now, where I would expect Israel to work with the U.S. in order to uh, pro uh, promote that is to start 
promoting a vision of the day after in terms of who takes control. Who takes control of the people? Who takes control of the administration? Who makes sure that the money doesn't go back to building underground tunnels and buying missiles, but begins to yeah. buy, build housing? And that is something which is delicate. It's not easy. It needs a new chapter, not only in the region, it needs a new chapter in Israel as well. Because Israel in the region has, we, yeah. you know, economically, we've been working with the Arab states. It's time that the politicians understand what we're doing on the high tech and the economy. We're building an alliance. We yeah. need to build one with uh, responsible people, with the support of Arab countries in Gaza. That will give us the base to build the Middle East into the next level, the next region. It takes courage. It takes yeah, a, it a military courage, but it also takes brains and diplomacy. Errol Margalit, thank you so much for thank joining so us. Much. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you and happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Jerusalem happy Hanukkah to you, you as well. Thank you. thank you. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Well, now this year will officially be the hottest on record, with many scientists alarmed that their predictions are outpacing reality. As the U.N.'s climate summit, COP28, wraps its first full week in Dubai, questions still remain over whether to phase out or phase down fossil fuels. Serious action must also involve agricultural industries, among the leading sources of global emissions. So how much progress has been made? A little earlier, I had the chance to ask the UAE's climate minister, Mariam Almeri, and U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. Minister Almeri and Secretary Vilsack, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get to this new initiative, Secretary Vilsack, let me ask you, what, what is the mood like this year at this year's COP summit, given that there's a war ongoing in the region not far away from you are right now? Obviously, for a year and a half, we've been covering the war in Ukraine as well. A, a lot of concerns, a lot of hotspots around the world. Obviously, the focus there is on climate. But overall, what is the, the sense you're getting? from attendees uh, about the uncertainty occurring in the world right now? Well, I think the UAE has done a remarkable job of welcoming uh, the world uh, to this venue. Uh, they have provided uh, a lot of space. They have provided convenience. Uh, they've made this, uh, this meeting uh, something that uh, people are excited to be, uh, to be involved in. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of activity, a lot of announcements, a, a lot of agreements a lot of investments taking place. So the mood here, as it relates to climate, uh, I think is positive. Uh, and I think they've also made a concerted effort to involve young people, uh, which I think also has an impact on, on uh, how people feel about being here at COP28. Uh, uh, this is, a, I think, a, a significant effort on the part of the UAE uh, to respond to the concerns that they've heard from previous COPs, and, and they've done a terrific job. So I don't get the sense that there's a, a level of worry or concern that's associated with what may be going on around us in the world. I think people are excited about the fact that uh, I know for sure food and agriculture are getting uh, a significant uh, 
uh, play here at COP28, more so than at any other previous COP, has certainly made a difference for the people I talk to. Well, Minister Amhari, let's talk about that. Uh, you're spearheading this first UAE-U.S. government joint co-led initiative, and that is the first global agricultural food systems and climate change coalition of its kind. Talk to us about some of the ambitious goals that you are hoping to achieve. Yeah, of course. Yana, uh, first, first of all, our partnership with the U.S. Uh, is very strategic in many areas, and of course with Secretary Vilsack, um, this partnership has been uh, through the Aim for Climate uh, platform. We spearhead this partnership since two years now, and we're so happy at the milestone that we've achieved uh, today. Uh, if we look back at COP27, we had about 275 partners on board. We've now more than doubled, uh, reaching over 600 partners. Uh, last year at COP27, we had $8 billion of committed investments. We've also doubled that and reached over $17 billion of committed investments. And then, of course, we have our innovation sprints. Uh, we were uh, last year at 27. We're now currently at 78 innovation sprints. So this really comes to show that this partnership has grown over the past few months and is growing exponentially. Can you elaborate more on, on these innovation sprints? Of course. Um, so first of all, just adding on to what Secretary Vilsack said, um, having food and ag on center stage uh, at day one at the Leaders' Summit was also another milestone moment. Um, what was important here was to get the political will of countries to ensure that food and, and ag systems are part of their NDCs, are part of their national adaptation plans, are part of their uh, biodiversity strategies. So we, we got 134 countries on board on day one for food systems and ag. Right now we're at 146 signatories and this is, this is growing. This is the political will. And then of course, Aim for Climate is really serving as a platform to gain tractions in investments and in innovations and, um, and uh, uh, really excelling the collaboration and some of the great innovations we're seeing here is in so many parts. So mostly we've been focusing on four areas. So that's the smallholder farmers in low and middle income countries. The second, it's uh, in the space of emerging technologies. The third is in agroecological uh, research and the fourth, is uh, re reduction in methane. So some of the great innovations we've seen in the sprints are things like fermentation technologies uh, in the plant-based uh, protein space. Uh, there's also many other uh, um, innovations and maybe Secretary Vilsack would like to mention some of those, but it's just so great to see partners coming in, looking at innovations that's, that, uh, that particularly touches their challenges and how they've been uh, getting investments into that space to actually be able to make an impact on the ground. So much of this uh, depends on change in behavior, whether it's nation change, whether it's uh, corporate change in cutting emissions and, and human behavior as well and food consumption, Secretary. And when it comes to Americans' food practices, uh, I, I want to get you to respond to meat consumption in general. And uh, there's a new report that says that if it doesn't change significantly and along with farming practices in the U.S., agriculture could become the biggest source of America's emissions. By 2050, Americans eat almost 70% uh, more meat per capita, as we know, than Europeans. How 
concerned are you uh, about this specific issue and what can be done to change behavior and change these trajectories that we're on? Well, what's interesting is that the livestock industry in the U.S. is very anxious and interested in embracing new technologies to reduce their carbon footprint. Uh, they believe, and I think they're right, uh, that they can make significant strides in reducing uh, methane. Uh, currently, we're looking at ways in which uh, different feeds uh, will be provided to livestock, which will reduce the amount of methane produced by the livestock. Uh, we're looking at feed additives that can be added to that feed that can further reduce the methane. Uh, and we're looking at ways in which the methane that is produced can be recaptured and reused, either as energy or in a variety of other uh, uh, bio uh, product uh, processing. Uh, we're seeing significant uh, iterations and, and innovations in manure management, uh, which is going to result uh, as well in a significant reduction in the greenhouse gas footprint of the livestock industry. So the industry is taking this very seriously, and they are now incented and encouraged to do so. Uh, our Climate Smart Commodity Partnership Initiative is actually encouraging and paying farmers to embrace many of these technologies and then providing them a premium in the marketplace uh, for what they sell that's been produced in a climate smart way. At, at the same time, I think we're also educating uh, consumers about the wide variety of choices that they can make as they go to the grocery store uh, in terms of uh, uh, nutritious diets. So a combination of education and a combination of incentives, I think you're going to see significant reductions in terms of methane uh, associated with the livestock industry. What's also important is to mention about food loss and food waste. And I know both of our countries are working on that aspect because you were talking about consumer behavior. Um, I think there's a huge uh, area of opportunities in the food loss and food waste um, uh, activities. Uh, the UAE is spearheading a national initiative called NEMA, which means blessing in Arabic, really about nudging behavior, getting this into schools, getting it into the horeca sector. As you know, we have a lot of tourists coming to the UAE. So how we can nudge people to make better decisions when it comes uh, down to uh, food loss and food waste. So this is also a huge catalyzer for methane reduction. As far as commitments uh, and goals set to phase out um, fossil fuel usage, uh, we've seen many European countries, including Germany, saying that they'll uh, make a fossil fuel phase out a top priority in this COP summit. Uh, Envoy Kerry ha has said that the that U.S. supports largely phasing out fossil fuels. Uh, Madam Minister, th there's concern that um, that priority isn't as high for some of the oil-producing countries, um, obviously uh, the UAE hosting as well. What are the commitments the UAE has set out in uh, reducing fossil fuel emissions? Uh, Biana, first of all, uh, the COP28 president, Dr. Sultan Ajabar, has been very vocal uh, publicly and being very active to make sure fossil fuel language is being used. Um, he actually managed to get uh, over 50 uh, national oil companies, um, which cover 40% of global oil production, to commit to two targets. One is eliminating methane by 2030. Number two is fully decarbonizing by 2050. This has also never happened before. Uh, again, this COP28 is a COP that includes everybody, includes all sectors that are responsible and that have to be accountable. 
Uh, in the UAE, we are already on a journey. Uh, our just energy transition started more than 20 years ago. We have four of the largest uh, solar parks in the world. We have a nuclear power station with the fourth unit operationalizing in Q1 in 2024. We're embarking on wind energy and our, our GDP right now, um, more than 72% of our GDP is non-oil non based. So we as a country are already working in that direction. We're ramping up renewables, tripling our renewable capacity by 2030 while decarbonizing our current energy systems, um, and which is something that also uh, uh, Dr. Sultana Jabber is calling for countries to do. We know that, that he's received some criticism for comments that he said were taken out of context about there being no, no science uh, a, a few weeks ago behind the idea that fossil fuels um, need to be phased out in order to address climate change. He said uh, that they were taken out of context. I'm just curious, uh, aside from everything that you just laid out there, does the UAE believe that there needs to be a set date for fossil fuel phase out completely? Uh, I want to explain it this way. First of all, the IPC report does state that fossil fuels will have a role to play, but a much smaller role to play. And we need to make sure, um, I need, people need to understand how much energy is involved in actually um, developing or, or um, building a solar panel and actually making a turbine for wind power you need the current energy systems to build your new energy systems of tomorrow. And you need to ramp that up to um, a, a capacity to be able to take up base loads of your countries. So in order to do that, you need to do that phase first before you can start talking about phasing out fossil fuels. What we need to focus on right now is by 2030, we need to slash global greenhouse gases emissions by 43%. So it's important we ramp up renewables and we phase out fossil fuel emissions. That's our goal right now before we can talk about phasing out fossil fuels. All right. Thank you so much for laying that out so clearly for us. Mariam Almeri and uh, Tom Vilsack, we appreciate you joining us from the COP28 summit. Thank you. Thank you. Well, with wars raging around the world, American foreign policy is under the spotlight. It's something our next guest should uh, be says people should be urgent and feeling urgent about. It's a top priority for the United States. Corey Shockey's latest piece for the magazine Foreign Affairs outlines her vision for a Republican foreign policy, as she explains to Walter Isaacson. Thank you, Biana and Corey Shockey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So it seems very iffy that the U.S. is going to continue aid to Ukraine for the long term and maybe even in the short term if Congress can't do it. What would that mean for Ukraine? Well, it would mean Ukraine loses its war against Russia's invasion. The United States provides fully half of the weapons assistance that's going to Ukraine. And my experience running coalitions in the American government is that when the United States steps back, other countries step back even further. And so, you know, Ukraine is wholly dependent on the armaments of the free world and also on budget support to keep its government running. Russia has what increasingly looks like a successful strategy of playing for time, wait, waiting for Western countries to be distracted, to for our 
uh, weapons caches to run short for our publics to start demanding concern about other things. And it, despite the president of the United States saying we will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes, it, it increasingly looks like we don't have a strategy for victory in Ukraine. I've read your piece in Foreign Affairs. I know you're strongly supportive of uh, Ukraine and aiding Ukraine. But given what you just said, what's plan B? What should the U.S. and Ukraine be doing if this is not sustainable? Is there some possible truce or ceasefire or is it just going to be surrender? I do not believe a truce or a ceasefire are possible because I don't believe Russia will be satisfied with that. And I don't believe even if you could get a near-term agreement with Russia over a settlement for Ukraine, that it wouldn't just be buying Russia time for rearmament and getting out from under Western sanctions in order to return to the conquest of Ukraine, because I don't believe their political objective has changed. I am, as you suggest, increasingly worried that even the Biden administration begins to talk about what Ukraine should be compromising uh, or that Ukraine should be realistic, by which they mean to say, not hold the United States at our word that we will help them regain all of their people and all of their internationally recognized territory. I think plan B is more assistance faster to Ukraine to break the back of Russia's invasion. Well, well but let me push back. I mean, that sounds great. And I understand why you feel that way. But it's pretty clear Congress is not going to rush more aid. So don't we have to have a strategy if that's the facts on the ground? So my read of congressional opposition to aid to Ukraine is that the votes are there for aid to Ukraine, provided that the White House agrees to border control measures because Ukraine is justifiably not the only thing people are concerned about. Um, I do think the votes are there on a bipartisan basis for aid to Ukraine. I also think we should be thinking, as you suggest, Walter, of creative ways to finance continued aid to Ukraine, like taking the interest off of the $300 billion in Russian central bank reserves that Western countries are holding under sanctions. That was Michelle Flournoy's great suggestion. There are other things we can and should be doing. We can push international organizations into more as the United States government should continue to fund Ukraine, in my judgment, but we should also, as you suggest, be thinking of backup plans of how to do it if Congress becomes truculent about it. We've talked about how aid to Ukraine in Congress, the issue, is now being tied to the border issue. You discuss in your piece, I think you call it chaotic, the border situation we have. Exactly what would you do and what's in the Republican plans that you think are good for dealing with the asylum issue and dealing with the border in general? Yeah, so there's not one magic bullet that's going to fix this. It's a complicated problem. But there are 200,000 attempts per month for illegal entry into the United States across the southern border. 
we need to do a bunch of things. We need to spend more money on customs and border patrol agents. We need more people. We need um, more technology so that we have visible depth to our border instead of just encountering people right at the border. We need to have transparency to see broader. We need deeper cooperation with Mexico and with other countries in Central America. Uh, so the United States is a wonderful place to come for refuge, but it's not the only place that people can come for refuge. And helping think that through. We need more courts to adjudicate asylum claims. People are coming into the country and waiting years to find out their status and have difficulty working in that time. So there are a whole bunch of things we need to do different and better, but they're not rocket science. They're just basic good governance issues that we need to turn our attention to. How is the situation in Gaza and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, made it more difficult to deal with our situation in Ukraine and in general uh, made it more difficult for American foreign policy around the world? I think it has made things more difficult for American policy around the world um, because we want the support of countries beyond Europe and beyond the West for Ukraine and for the security of Israel. And, and the terrorist attack by Hamas into Israel, they have achieved their objective, which is isolating Israel internationally. And and that's terrible. It's bad for Palestinians, it's bad for Israelis, it's bad for the United States. A second way in which it has made American foreign policy more challenging is just the bandwidth issue of paying attention to Ukraine and paying attention to the war in Gaza and identifying other uh, potential hotspots like Chinese attempts to intimidate the Philippines in the uh, China Sea, East China Sea, those are all perking problems. And adversaries like Iran, like China, may be tempted to take advantage of them. I guess a third way that I think um, both the war in Gaza and the war in Ukraine have complicated American foreign policy is that they have made clear that we have shortchanged our defense industrial base and, and need to really race to be able to become an arsenal of democracy for ourselves and for our allies. Because over the course of the last 20 years, administrations of both political parties have allowed a shrinking of the defense industrial base that is inconsistent with our own needs, much less the needs of our allies. In your uh, foreign affairs piece, uh, it's a case for conservative internationalism. Why has the Republican Party and a lot of the conservative movement in the United States now become so non-internationalist? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is the long shadow of the mistakes of the invasion and management of the Iraq War. I think there's a fair amount of weariness that it feels like the United States has been at war for a long time with not enough to show for it. 
Uh, well, I, let me let me stop you there. Doesn't that have, as Dr. Kissinger would have said, the odious smell of truth that we've been in a lot of forever wars without much to show for it? Well, I reject the framing of forever wars, uh, but I do agree that, yeah, I mean, Americans expect us to do better than that, and they deserve to expect us to do better than that. And what has hamstrung us? You mean in the Afghan and Iraq wars? Afghan, Iraq, uh, basically since Vietnam, we haven't had a clean ability to fight a new type of war successfully. I don't know. I think we did pretty well in the 1991 Gulf War. I think there are other right. interventions like the intervention in the Balkans that we did with NATO allies and in conjunction with the United Nations that we did well. I think the problem in both Afghanistan and Iraq wars was that we were nowhere near committing the resources consistent with our political objectives. And, and so things bogged down and we didn't narrow our political objectives. We just kept doing the same thing over and over. Afghanistan, I think there, you know, Iraq up until the surge in 2006, where we did get a winning strategy and did adequately resource it and did change our relationship with Iraqis and the Iraqi government in order to um, make it successful, but then turned it off around 2008 and 10. In Afghanistan, we did take a eventually what I think is the right strategy, which was transferring responsibility to Afghanistan and helping support them until they had the ability to do the work we wanted to have done. But again, I think the declining legitimacy of the Afghan government um, made that incredibly difficult to achieve. Well, you say we needed more resources and in your piece, you talk about the importance of more military funding. I think the U.S. probably spends more on military than the next nine countries combined. Is it that we're not spending enough money or we haven't figured out how to do it more effectively? It's predominantly that we're not spending enough money. You know, 13% of U.S. GDP went to defense in the Eisenhower administration, which is one, you won't remember it, but I do, that was thought of as cheap on national defense. Right. We now spend 3.2% of US GDP on defense and we act like it's an intolerable burden. It's actually not. You could easily double defense spending and it wouldn't be an intolerable burden. The problem is that whereas entitlement spending was 19% of the budget in uh, 1970, it's now 63%. So all discretionary spending, whether for education or defense, is being crowded out by entitlements. That's the problem we need to fix to free up discretionary spending for our other urgent national needs. In your foreign affairs piece, you do talk about entitlement spending. Uh, and there are a few Republicans who've taken that on. But do you mainly mean that we should cut Social Security and uh, Medicare and Medicaid? Yes, I do. And I think 
you know, we've done it before. Uh, they did it in the Reagan administration. And the Obama administration commissioned work, the Simpson-Bowles Commission, that came up with a number of uh, very solid recommendations. The key with changes to entitlement spending is to perk them in slowly so that people can make retirement decisions and healthcare decisions consistent with available resources. And if we don't do it soon, I mean, uh, interest on the federal debt is going to surpass defense spending in the next three years. And it's going to become unsustainable to pay for the entitlements we have promised Americans. So defense or non-defense, we actually need to do this for keeping our promise to our fellow Americans. You wrote a book a while back about the transfer of hegemony from the British Empire to America. Given all you've just said, do you think and do you worry about the fact that the era of American hegemony uh, might be waning? I do worry about it, um, but I probably worry too much about it. I think every good strategist is fundamentally a desperate paranoiac. So I worry a lot about it, but uh, the I don't worry about China overtaking the United States because I think you can feel the gears meshing of American society and American government policy acknowledging the risks that a China that is repressive at home and aggressive internationally pose for us. But we are preparing for the problems of a stampedingly successful China, and that's no longer the China we are dealing with. We are now looking at a China that is marooned in the middle income trap and unlikely to be able to make the political choices and economic choices that will restore vitality. What I worry about American foreign policy, and here I agree with many aspects of Biden administration policy, is that you know, for the United States to fail, we will fail because of our own choices, not because of others' choices, of allowing democracy to become less institutionalized and less trusted in the United States, electing people who are hostile to the transition of power from their hands, uh, to economic policies and secondary sanctions becoming so profligate that they impinge on the centrality of the dollar as a major holding currency. We make a lot of mistakes in American policy, domestic and international. Our saving grace is that we also are pretty good at fixing our problems. And that's ultimately where I think the hope, my hope for the sustainment of an American international order, which after all is not only beneficial to the United States, it's not only beneficial to our friends, it's the best power structure for small and middle-sized states because we voluntarily limit our power into rules and institutions. Corey Shockey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Walter. And finally, freedom fighter, anti-apartheid icon, and revolutionary leader. A decade after his death, we look at the legacy of Nelson Mandela. 
While most remember him as a symbol of the struggle for justice and equality, his widow, Grasa Michelle, also remembers a devoted husband, father, and grandfather. In 2018, Christian asked Grasa about meeting Mandela later in life and why she felt it was the best time of his life. We were both mature. And so love for us, it's, it was not only to say, oh, your beautiful eyes. It was looking deep into the soul of the partner you have. And because of that, our connection was really very, very deep. Second, Madiba had uh, gone through all kind of, uh, you know, sacrifices in life. And he had uh, complete, he was almost completing his uh, uh, term as head of state. For the first time, he was going to have time for himself and time for family and even time to enjoy the company of his wife. I don't want to go back to say the circumstances in which his first marriage was, but the reality is that they were very turbulent years for them. Time of being a family it was very, very short. So in reality, Mediba had the opportunity to enjoy the normalcy of a family is when he married me. And so it was the best for me because both in terms of uh, his soul to be in peace with himself, of having delivered the best he could to his own people, he could be in peace with himself. At the same time, he could have a family. I gave him the opportunity of having under his roof his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And this has given him a lot of joy because he, during the years of prison, he wanted to have a family. And for the first time, he could have this. So it was the best of times because his uh, spirit was in peace with himself. His soul could connect in such deep way with another soul. Socially, he could have really the opportunity of being the head of his family and enjoy time with his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So he was really a happy man. So I met him at a time he could be a happy man. Grace and Michelle. this is what really gives me also the joy that this man we celebrate in all forms, etc., etc. at the end of his life, I made him happy. That is just beautiful. Imagine sharing a life with someone like Nelson Mandela. Wow. Well, that is it for now. Thank you so much for watching, and goodbye from New York. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.